Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Holy Spirit, would you open our ears and eyes? We need you to reveal. We don't want information. We don't want entertainment. We want you to disciple us. Jesus, you are our teacher, our Lord, our rabbi. We are following you, listening to you, and asking you to correct us, strengthen us, and give us fresh direction today. May the word come alive, and may I have the grace to speak it uh, with your anointing. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in John chapter 7. How many of you have a supportive spirit family? Your, your, your natural physical family uh, supports you in your ministry, your walk with Jesus Christ. You've got people that pray for you, love you. They're on your side in, in, spiritually. How many? I won't ask for how many don't, but I know that that's the situation. There are few things that are a greater gift to us than than a, than than. than parents or children or, or, or siblings uh, who stand with us in our faith, who pray for us. Isn't, isn't it? It's wonderful. There are a few things that hurt more, that undermine and, 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 and are more painful than when our family opposes us and, uh, and hates our faith. Uh, what we're going to see today is, is, is something that's really quite tragic. It's quite ugly. Uh, Jesus' brothers had turned against him uh, very viciously. And, and I, I just, the more I pondered it, the more, the more I, I, it's hard to even understand how it happened. Uh, they've, they, you, you'll see them turn against him. And, you know, it's one thing for the world to hate you. It's another thing when your family turns on you. One of the things that anybody who pastors or ministers in any way will find every so often, it'll, somebody who surprises you, you thought loved you, will just stick you in the ribs with a knife. You know, you think, where did that come from? And it just takes the wind out of you. It takes the air out of you. You're going to watch that happen to Jesus. In case we wonder, did he know what it was like? Boy, did he ever. Uh, we're going to watch him. Let's see what we learn. John 7, I'll begin verse 1, and I'll go down to verse uh, 10. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Galilee, of course, is up there in the north by the, by the Sea of Galilee. Judea is the area around Jerusalem. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. And therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So in case you wonder, what on earth did they just mean? Was that, was that, was that, a, was that a shot? Yes, it was. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always ready, opportune, present. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it and its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast. Would you say this feast? 
Yeah, he is not going to go up and celebrate the Feast of Booths. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, he himself also went up, not to the feast as it were, as were to observe it, but he went to Jerusalem. He, he went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. Do you know someone whose walk with God makes you jealous? I'm talking about spiritual jealousy. Does it seem like that he likes that person better than he likes you? Does he speak to them often and easily, yet when you seek him, you usually hear nothing? I won't ask for a show of hands, but are there, are there people you find yourself every so often just feeling so frustrated over because God seems to bless them, be with them, help them, open doors for them? They have all of these opportunities and gifts that you don't have, and, you, and, and the thought comes... One is you're angry at them for some strange reason. You're angry at them and, and bitter toward them. But the thought is, God, why do you like them better than me? That, that's, that's the terrible message that comes with spiritual jealousy. Ultimately, the root issue is, God, why don't you like me as much as you like that person? I have to tell you, this is something that gnaws at me. I'll watch, I'll watch pastors who seem to do what they do with such ease. You know, me, I'm sort of chugging along, you know, trying to do it. We get a time, you know, hanging on. And then I watch some people do this with, with such ease and such grace. It, and it just seems like things just come to them, you know. And I'm, meanwhile, puffing along behind, you know. And, 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 I, and I feel jealous of it. Uh, I feel frustrated by it. And I can find myself being very critical. You know, here's what's wrong with them. Here's all, you know, you start picking at people. And then I, then I feel terrible and I... Yeah, oh, God, forgive me. And then I go right back to it. And then I forgive me, Jesus. Bless them, oh, God, but not too much. And oh, God, you know, and just. Uh, and, and. Yeah, you look at me like, why are you even up there preaching today? Okay. If so, those are symptoms of spiritual jealousy. It begins with a bit of envy. But if left unchecked, grows into a deep resentment, even hatred toward that particular person whom we believe is being blessed by God more than we are. And I think spiritual jealousy is the root cause behind this shockingly ugly encounter between Jesus and his own brothers. They came to him when it was time to make preparations to travel to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, which is, by the way, in the fall. Chapter 6 took place in the spring around Passover. Now we're half a year later. Uh, he's been up in the Galilee the whole time. Now we're talking in the fall, usually uh, around October. And we're, we're uh, looking about going down to Jerusalem. And they pressed him hard to attend that feast. John tells us that the situation in Judea by this time had grown so dangerous that Jesus had stopped traveling there and was ministering only in Galilee. It was no secret that the religious leaders wanted to kill him. Yet rather than try to protect him, his brothers urged him to put himself in harm's way. Why? Why did these four young men, and there were four of them, why did these four young men hate their older brother, and I'll say it once, their half-brother, so deeply? Since it appears that their father Joseph had died sometime earlier, Jesus must have been the principal breadwinner in the family for a period of time. 
and he had always lived an exemplary life as their oldest brother. You'll hear this over and over again, I'm sorry, but when we were in Israel, one of the places I, I love to take people is the, is the city that was right next to Nazareth, which was the place where construction work was taking place in, in Jesus' time. It's called, it's called Sepphoris, and, and it's, it was the capital for Herod Antipas, and it was all this building and construction, and there's, there's theaters, and there's uh, huge elaborate uh, streets and all this. It's, a, it's about, I don't know, four or five miles, I suppose, as you walk it right through these. And you can, to this day, it's just a bunch of fields. And you can, see the, you can see the dirt tracks you'd take to go right over the ridge. And there's, there's Nazareth. So in my mind, this is where Joseph and, and Jesus would take their lunch basket, whether they walked or had a donkey or whatever, and, and, and they'd go to work each day. And so Jesus has been, is, is a worker. He's, he's a technon. He's a construction worker is what he is. Uh, and not necessarily in wood. It says nothing about wood. Uh, that's just been uh, our, our historical picture because in, I suppose in England they got wood. So when they, the King James translates it, they translate carpenter. Um, but he's a builder. And what you have in Israel is not a lot of wood. What do you have a lot of? Rocks, yes. So, so it's a stonemason is going to be a lot, of, a lot of the work. That makes a very strong man, may I add, uh, when you work with that kind of thing. So he's a, he's a strong man. It, it isn't said, but Joseph clearly has died. He is not in the picture. He's a good man, so he hasn't betrayed his family. He's gone. I don't know. He's, he's dead. How long has Jesus been the principal breadwinner then? How long has he... Uh, come home with his paycheck, whatever that means, and brought it to Mary uh, to feed the family. How long has he been working that way? He's the oldest brother. He's done all these things. Just, I put that in perspective because here are his younger brothers doing this to him. It's, it gets really amazing. But, more than, but none of that seems to have mattered. The brothers couldn't deny the works of power Jesus was doing. But instead of being delighted that God was using their brother in such amazing ways, they attacked his character, because, accusing him of being ambitious and self-promoting. Did you hear it? They're saying, nobody wants to stay up here in little old Galilee with just us few folks. You need to go down to the big time. You need to go down there with your adoring crowds. Show them how wonderful you are. And the good news is that at least two of those four brothers would later on become disciples of Jesus. After his resurrection. Now that will do it. Uh, I don't know if all four got it. But it, Paul actually in 1 Corinthians 15. It's verse 7. He will reference this. He will say the resurrected Jesus appeared to James. And he means his brother James. Not James the, not James the apostle. James his brother. He says he appeared to him. So that, that convinced James that okay. You, you, are, you are who you say you are. But at the moment... They were seething with spiritual jealousy. Let's try to find out why, because few of us are immune to this attitude. And if we don't guard our hearts carefully, it can damage us in the same way. We can end up hating not only a person, but the God who seems so unfair. I'm always trying to get you to understand, you know why I do this. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sneak in as much Bible teaching as, I, as you'll tolerate. And when you all start walking on me, then I go back to the sermon. You know, I just, I mean, I'm on it. I, I admit what I'm doing. I'm teaching you more, the Bible. Forgive me. All right. 
This encounter in Capernaum took place just before Passover, the, the one we've seen in John 6. And a year later, during the following Passover season, Jesus was crucified. So when we step into chapter 7, we enter the final year of his ministry. You understand? He is now going to go to Jerusalem and not come back. He'll move, he'll move to Bethabara. He'll move to Ephraim. He'll move other places, but he won't come back. So he's, this is the final year, and he's leaving uh, Galilee. But at that point in time, the religious leaders in Jerusalem had grown so hostile that Jesus chose to remain in the relative safety of Galilee for the next half year. John described the situation this way, and after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not wish to walk in Judea because the Jews, which means the religious leaders, were seeking to kill him. Passover occurs during March or April of each year, and it marks the end of the rainy season. The Feast of Booths is a week-long festival celebrated in September or October, which marks the end of the dry season. The Feast of Booths is one of the three major festivals which the law of Moses commands all adult males to come to Jerusalem to present their offerings. The other two are Passover and Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. And when the time came to prepare for the hundred-mile journey south, the jealousy and suspicion which had developed in his brothers boiled over into an open attack on his character. It's hard to comprehend why they became so angry. One possible answer is that they were influenced by the unbelieving atmosphere of Nazareth. One can only imagine how the members of that synagogue must have criticized him after they failed to execute him early in his ministry. You, you understand, uh, he came back to Nazareth, and uh, he stood up in the synagogue, read from Isaiah 61, remember this? Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for etc. And, and he, everybody was fine with that until he got to the place where he began to rebuke Nazareth. And he began to conf confront them for their unbelief and call for repentance. And he said, he said uh, why is it that the, the only person who had a miracle with Elijah was a, was a, was a Syrophoenician woman in Zarephath? Uh, she had faith. Uh, why, why none of the widows in, in Israel? Uh, why, why was it Naaman the Syrian who was healed? Uh, were there not all these lepers in Israel? In other words, here are Gentiles who have genuine faith in God, whereas the people of God have none. And so, boom, right in there. How did they respond? They grabbed him in a fury, and they took him out to a cliff, and were going to throw him off the cliff. That's his home church. It is. He's grown up in this town. His brothers have grown up in this town. That's their pastors and elders, as it were. This is their spiritual leadership, and that's how the spiritual leadership felt about him. And you might say that when he goes to Jerusalem, that's his denominational leadership, <laughs> and they're trying to kill him. So the brothers are watching this, and the brothers are still in Nazareth. And they are basically absorbing, I think, that whole unbelief of him and saying the man's crazy. If you recall, there comes a point when the brothers and, the, and, and mom, I don't know how Mary gets dragged into this, because Mary's had the angel. Mary knows she was pregnant without, without having a sexual relationship with a man. Mary knows who, the, who Jesus is. So I, I think she gets dragged along. But they stood outside one of the places he was ministering, I think in Capernaum. Remember this? And, 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 and the word came in. They couldn't get close to him because of the crowds. And somebody said, your mother and your brothers are outside waiting for you. 
And then he responds with that, who are my mother and my brother and my family, those who do the will of God. And the, and, the, and the understanding of that is they had come to take him home. They had come to say, you're tired. You're, something's wrong with you, but we love you. Come with us. It was, a, it was, what do you call those things when you, intervention. It was a family intervention. They felt he'd lost it and they were going to come and take him home. You know, you're ministering with the, uh, the world's there, the devil's there. But wouldn't you love to have your family support you? <laughs> Basically, at this encounter, his brothers accused him of being ambitious and self-promoting by accusing him of doing those miracles for the wrong reasons. They said his ultimate goal was to make a name for himself. None of them recognized that the miracles were signs confirming him as Israel's Messiah. In what must have been a mocking tone, they urged him to go down to Jerusalem because the crowds in Galilee were far too small. He would find much larger crowds in Judea because tens of thousands of pilgrims would be pouring into Jerusalem to observe the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths. They said that's where he needed to do his wonders. For no one does anything in secret who also seeks himself to be in the open, in the public eye. If you do these things, manifest yourself to the world. And then John explains why they said this. For not even his brothers were believing in him. This, this indeed was a sad moment, but as we read it, we need to remember that his brother's unbelief disappeared in at least James and Judas after Jesus was resurrected. The way Jesus answered his brothers tells us that there may have been a far more sinister motive hidden beneath their insulting words. They were hoping to provoke him to go down to Jerusalem because they knew how dangerous the situation was for him. Is it possible? They actually hoped he might be arrested and persecuted. The answer, his answer seems to imply that. My time is not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. In other words, he told his brothers, the time appointed for me to die has not yet arrived, but it will come. Yet human history has always been full of unbelief toward God and accusation toward his servants. Which is why the vicious attitudes you're expressing come so easily to you, brothers. Then he said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify concerning it that its works are evil. By the term world, he is referring to rebellious humans. Everywhere he went, Jesus had been telling people they needed to repent and believe that God had sent him to be their savior. Yet rebellious people don't want anyone telling them to repent and instinctively attack the one who does. He was trying to explain to his brothers why so many voices had been critical of him and why they were too. His statement to them that the world cannot hate you may indicate that his brothers were quite popular in Nazareth. He had confronted the people of Nazareth. He had challenged their unbelief and now he was hated for it. But his brothers shared the town's unbelief and were warmly embraced. One more thing. It was customary for large caravans of pilgrims to travel together for safety. But that year, Jesus did not go with them to Jerusalem. So you've got everybody gathering for a great mass migration. It's, you know, there's, there's robbers, there's all kinds of dangers. So you get on a caravan and then everybody goes down on a caravan together to Jerusalem. That year, he made a deliberate choice not to observe the Feast of Booths. And the reason he did not observe it was prophetic. He said, I am not going up to the fe this feast because my time has not been fulfilled. 
In other words, he told his brothers he would not celebrate the Feast of Booths until by his death he had first fulfilled the Feast of Passover. To understand why, we need to understand the prophetic meaning which had developed around the Feast of Booths. Originally, it was a yearly festival intended to remind the people that they had lived in tents or booths made of brush uh, during their exodus from the Egypt. But as the centuries passed, that festival also came to be associated with the restoration of the nation at the coming of Messiah. Zechariah spoke of the, the feast this way. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from, that, from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the what? Feast of booths. See it? He pictured those who survived among the Gentile nations coming to Jerusalem to worship after the final battle of Armageddon. So the festival, he says, at the festival, he says, they will observe is the Feast of Booths. So that feast came to symbolize the Messianic age in which the power of the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon all the earth. At that, the, the, as we move into chapter 7 and move forward now, Jesus is going to talk, talk a tremendous amount about the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's going to, let me, let me explain this. The Feast of Booths, what, what, what they did at the Feast of Booths, one of them, things. I mean, everybody's living in, in these little brush arbors and all and, and celebrating and having certain fruits and things. But uh, the priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam, uh, which is in the lower end of the city of David, and, and would take a, a pitcher and would scoop a pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam and would carry it back to the temple and then stand in front of this, this great high altar, the bird altar, bird offering off altar, and would pour the water out. It, it said several things. One, it said, we're at the end of the dry season. We're trusting you for more water. It's a faith statement. But the other is, it, as it came to be understood, he also poured out a pitcher of wine. And he was saying, when Messiah comes, the Spirit will be poured out. So it says, it says as uh, later on, it says on the, on the last day of this feast, the priest, as he's pouring these things out, Jesus stood among the worshipers and said, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And as, this, as the scriptures have said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of water. I'm the Messiah, and I have come with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I have come with that, that, that outpouring of unlimited power and presence of God. Is anyone thirsty? That's the whole message. So you don't get, you don't get Pentecost till you first had Passover. You don't have the outpouring of the Spirit until you first had a death and an atonement for our sins. You follow that? So he says, I'm not going up to this feast this year. I'll celebrate that later. Jesus and Joseph. The relationship with, between Jesus and his brothers is very similar to the relationship between Joseph, the patriarch, and the rest of Jacob's sons. Joseph's ten older brothers became very jealous of him. He was the favorite son of their father. Jacob had, had given Joseph a special coat designating him as the eldest son, which he wasn't, and indicating that he would inherit the large portion of the family estate. That alone produced tremendous jealousy. His brothers, quote, saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Let me describe. You remember the story? Uh, 
Jacob wanted to get married, uh, so he goes up to Haran, which is up, I, I suppose it's in uh, Turkey today, Turkey, or uh, I think where it is. And he goes up to Haran, and he meets Rachel. He wants to marry Rachel. She is apparently a cousin. His uncle Laban uh, is her father. And so he has no dowry. So he says to his uncle, I'll work for you for seven years. That'll be my dowry. And then may I have the hand of your daughter, Rachel? Yes, you may. He works for him for seven years. And then, then on the night of the wedding, uh, the uncle is a pretty shrewd individual. He switches daughters on him. You remember this? And gives uh, 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 Jacob the oldest daughter. And apparently there's a veil as we're getting married and all of this. And then he was apparently, I hate to say this, but probably pretty drunk because you would think you'd notice at some point. Um, <laughs> but it is what it is. And so in the morning, he realizes what's happened to him. And, and, and he's furious. And he goes to his uncle and he says, what did you just do? And he says, well, I got to marry my oldest daughter first, don't I? And uh, so he, he says, well, uh, work for me another seven years. <laughs> <laughs> Don't buy a car from this guy. <laughs> Work for me for another seven years, and you can have the hand of Rachel. So he works for him another seven years and then gets married. And then it gets kind of sad. Um, Ra uh, poor Rachel can't conceive a child right away. And so then she's, she gets into this baby contest with the, her older sister, Leah. Leah's already had four children. And so she says, take my servant girl and uh, have children for me by her. And so uh, Jacob does what he has to do. And, 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 uh, and then so he's producing children by the servant girl. And then Leah gets jealous and says, well, well take my servant girl. And then that servant girl starts producing. So we've got, ba we got a baby factory, four baby mothers, and we're going for it. The oldest child of Rachel is who? Yeah, her firstborn son is, is Joseph. That's what you have to see in this. Why did Jacob give Joseph, what the, we call a coat of many colors. It wasn't many colors. It was a coat of long sleeves. It was a long sleeve coat that went also down to the floor. And it was the indication he is the eldest son of the family. And he will inherit the, 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 the estate, the family estate. By the way, let me tell you why they inherited the state like that. When you're in an agricultural economy, when you have fields and flocks and everything, if you divide everything you have between all of your children every time someone dies, within a few generations, there is no agricultural estate left. Take your field, cut it in half for the first one, then cut it in half again, cut it in half, and you've, everybody's got a garden plot by the time you're done. You can't do that. So the eldest, whoever the inheritor is, listen to this, not only do they get the, the, the main thing, but they are fully responsible for their siblings. They have to care for their siblings. So it isn't like, well, you guys are just out of it. They have to care for them, provide for them, because they have inherited the estate. They are, they are the eldest brother, and they have this responsibility. Why, think with me, why do you think Jacob gave that coat to Joseph, who is clearly not the oldest son, why did he give it to him? He's the firstborn of... Who, and Rachel is the woman he intended to... Yeah, Leah, he got schnookered with. Leah, he, I mean, he got, Leah's not his fault. In other words, Joseph is the firstborn son of, in, in Jacob's mind, his wife. His wife. He loved her. He loved her a lot. 
and that's his wife. And that's my firstborn son by my wife, and my, my father-in-law did this stuff to me, and I've got kids, but that's my firstborn son. I just want to put it in perspective. He's not just sort of an idiot, though he is an idiot. <laughs> I mean, any father has got to look beyond the, look beyond the situation. Any father's got to look at this and go, uh, okay, these are my children. It's not their fault. And, and you, you know, so the way he handled it was rotten. Uh, and he created the mess he had. But the brothers hate their, hate their, uh, their oldest uh, because the father likes him best. Now, let's go back to this. That alone produced tremendous jealousy. Then to make matters worse, God seemed to favor Joseph as well. Joseph received two vivid dreams which predicted that the entire family, including their parents, would someday bow down to him in submission. That was more than they could bear. And when the opportunity presented itself, they plotted to kill him. As we know, they didn't kill him, but instead ended up selling him as a slave to a passing caravan of traders. The events that happened to Joseph after that are a remarkable testimony to God's overruling power. But we're left to marvel at how his brother's jealousy turned murderous. It appears that the jealousy of Jesus' brothers had turned murderous as well. What I'm talking about, when we talk about spiritual jealousy, they are jealous of their brother. They're jealous of the father's love for him. And they are jealous of the, of the, of the visions and the anointing that's on this young man. And it turns to hatred toward uh, their brother. And I would suggest to you, it also turns to hatred toward their father. You, you remember what happened. They, they threw Joseph in a, in a pit, and then they pulled him out. You know, then they sold him, and they said, what are we going to tell our dad? So they took his coat, and they c- covered it with, with, with a goat's blood. And then they tore it. And they went home, and they said, Dad, this is all we found. Do you recognize it? And Dad go, you know, of course, it's, it's Joseph's coat. And Dad, their father, Jacob, went into a savage depression. Uh, when I taught through uh, Genesis, this, this came out so clearly. In fact, it says he despaired of life. And he did for years. I mean, a long time. The man, having lost Rachel and having lost Joseph, he went into a savage depression and was there for many years. In fact, he did not come out until he went down to, to uh, Egypt uh, with Joseph. And in the last years of his life, Jacob became a wonderful he became Israel. He became a great elder of God and, a, and an anointed prophet. His prophecies are right on. But those are the last years after tremendous amounts of pain. Imagine you're one of those sons and you know where Joseph is. And you watch your father year, year after year wanting to die. Wanting to die. And you don't tell him his son's alive. I, I know they've got themselves in a mess. But at some point, don't you say, Dad, I don't know how to tell you this, but he's alive. I can't bear to watch you hurt like this anymore. But they could. They could watch him hurt like that. And I think it's, yeah, you loved that boy, didn't you? You loved that boy. I'm, I'm bringing this out because spirit, this jealousy thing is a very sour thing. And I think it afflicts all of us if we're not careful. This is something we have to guard our hearts from. Another classic example of this is David's brothers. Remember that story? David is, is go, uh, Samuel comes to the house of Jesse, and he's going to pick a king. 
And so they line up all the brothers. There's seven older brothers. They all line up in the house, you know. Samuel goes down from starts with Eliab at the oldest. And he looks at him, no. Goes to the next one, no. Goes to the next one, goes down all seven. And he says, is this all you got? And none of them, none of them chosen. And then Jesse says, well, it's the little ones out in the, in the sheep. And, he, and then Samuel says, you know, go get him. We'll stand until his majesty arrives. Picture the older brothers. <laughs> now, I want to show you something. Go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17, I think it's verse 28. I want you to see what happened to the oldest brother. Uh, this, we're, we're, we're at uh, the Valley of Elah. Forgive me, but we just stood and walked, looked at the Valley of Elah. They have no place to view it from except a gas station. But we stood there in that gas station and looked over it, and you see that on the ridge on that side is where the Israel's army was, and here's the valley, and here's that little creek. It's all there. And then we were on the side of the Philistines, unfortunately. And, uh, but look here at chapter 17, verse 28. David is sent by his father with some food out to the troops to, for his brothers. And he's, he, he sees this thing with Goliath going and Goliath challenging Israel. And David's, David starts yelling at the soldiers. And he says, what are you doing letting that big oaf say that stuff about God? Somebody kill that idiot. You know, and he's, he's going on like that. And look what, look what his oldest brother says, verse 28. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Punk. I, I, I know your insolence and your wickedness of your heart. You have come down in order to see the battle. That man hates his brother. Doesn't he? His, he has this. And look at, think about it. He stood there in his house and watched the prophet Samuel pour a horn of oil over David. This little red-haired kid, pours the horn of oil over him. And it said the Spirit of the Lord fell upon David. In other words, something happened when he did. When he poured that horn of oil over him, did he go down? What, what happened to that boy? But the power hit the boy. Eliab's watched God's favor come over his brother. And he is jealous out of his ears. He can hardly bear watching what's going on. And has come to hate him. Spiritual jealousy is based on a lie that God has favorites. While it is true that God does have different assignments for each of us, and some of those are more glamorous than others. And it is also true that some people choose to walk much closer to God than others. It is not true that God is unfair or has favorites. It is not true that he desires to communicate with one person, but not another. Or to give the power of the Holy Spirit to one person, but not another. Simply put, he is no respecter of persons. Can you say amen to that? Amen. That's Acts chapter 10, verse 34. The fact he created every one of us, the fact is, every one of us in his own image, because he wanted to know and love each one. You follow that? You and I and all of us are made in his image, which means we can talk to him as a friend. One person to another. 
not a dog owner to their pet, not a creator to this little, you know, anthill. This is friendship he's made us for, relationship he's made us for, all of us. The fact is he created us in his own image because he wanted to know and love each one of us. We are the ones who limit him. As John the Baptist said, he gives the spirit without measure. Would you repeat that? He gives the spirit. So how much, will he, how much of the spirit does he give? Yeah, when you have the person of God, when he talks about rivers, it's actually a, a, a very small term for it. When, the, when, when, when God the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, you, you have God. There's no limit, period. And every one of us is given that through Christ. So the lie which forms the base of all spiritual jealousy is that God doesn't want to bless me. This is why my jealousy toward an individual gradually turns into hatred toward God. The hatred Joseph's brothers felt toward him must have developed into a hatred toward their father, who for some reason in their minds had decided he didn't love them, at least not as much as he loved Joseph. And I think in Jacob's case, that was true. Uh, he, he, is a, he is a faulty human being. That's not true of our, our heavenly father. When we watch God bless someone else, it's easy to assume that, as did Joseph's brothers, that our father has decided for some reason to love that person more than he does us. Such jealousy becomes a wedge that drives our heart away from God. The promise. Then why is there a difference? There's no denying the fact that some people appear to have more of God than others. If that's not caused by favoritism, then what is the cause? Well, the easiest way to answer that question is to understand what God has promised to each one of us. On the last day of the Feast of Booths, probably as the priest poured out a silver pitcher of water onto the altar of burnt offering, Jesus stood up among the worshipers gathered at the temple and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. I, I translated belly. Uh, we talk about innermost being. You know why it's a problem? The word, you can recognize it, koilia, like the coils of rope. It means the intestines. That's how come you get it in uh, King James, the bowels of compassion. But it's hard for us to say, you know, out of your bowels will flow rivers of living water. It just doesn't have the right ring. So we're, we're, we're looking for a word. Uh, belly, but, but the point of what he's saying, what, what the point of that is, the Spirit of God is going to come and live in you. And, and I'll show you the passages. Jesus didn't make this up. He didn't start it. He's quoting, basically. He's pulling it right out of Scripture. This was promised by the prophets, that God would come and put himself, his very Spirit, Emmanuel, God, not only with us, but God in us. He will come and dwell in us. And Paul uses the phrase as a living temple. We became a temple of the presence of God. So we wouldn't miss the point Jesus was making. John explained. And this he said concerning the spirit whom the ones believing in him were going to receive. For the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. On that day, Jesus announced that every person who believed in him, would be given 
a specific promise, which is found in the scriptures. And then John explains that this promise was given after Jesus was glorified, meaning after he was resurrected from the dead. When did it arrive? When did it first arrive? The day of Pentecost. Yeah, that's the fulfillment. That's the, where, where this new era, all the way through, Jesus is saying it's not business as usual. The promises of the outpouring of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, uh, that the, that the, uh, the, the promises are, are like the, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, the earth will be baptized in the Spirit. The power and presence of God will come. Jesus is saying, what was promised through my death and resurrection will come to you. At this point, it comes to us individually. The day will come and you'll be part of that when it will come to the entire earth. But it comes to us now, individually. So now we have to ask, which promise in the Old Testament was he, re to re was he referring to? The answer is, it was the promise that when the Messiah came, he would pour out the Holy Spirit on all of God's people. There are many such passages in the Scriptures, but here are two very important ones. And I'd like you to turn with me. Look at Ezekiel 36. You hear me reference this, but it's, ex it's an extremely important promise. And, and, and I'm going to read starting at verse 24. For I will take, the Lord speaking, I will take you from the nations, where all of the places where God's people have been scattered out into the nations, I will gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And then finally, I will put my spirit, where? Within Say within you. Within. Yeah, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Verse 24, God says he will gather his people. He's talking, first of all, to Israel. But all, of, all who believe now are bundled into those promises. All of us are. He will gather his people. Verse 25, he will wash away their sins. Verse 26, he will remove the rebellion in their hearts and give each one a new, obedient human spirit. Uh, let me stop there for a minute. That is a really important truth. God says that he will wash your sins away and he will change your basic heart. He will take out a heart of stone and he will put in a heart of flesh. You will now have a, a, you, as the, your essential person, your spirit, your human spirit, will now want to obey God. Your human spirit will be tender, sensitive to his correction. Uh, you will repent. You will follow, you will walk with him, you love him and want to obey him. Do you understand? This is extremely important to me. I believe that. And here's what it says to me. When a person becomes born again, God takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. Now, that's what it says. Therefore, when I preach to you, I do not need to preach to born-again people with scoldings, threatenings, and, 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 and rantings. I do not, I am not your motivation because you already have it in here. If you're the kind of person who needs rantings, threatenings, and railings, you aren't saved yet. 
it says. Because it says if you are, you love him. And you want to please him. Do you follow this? And, and I, there, are, there are people, and there are church people, who just really want the pastor to just thunder and spit at them. And, and, and they go home kind of flailed and feeling like they kind of paid their dues and they're forgiven for a week or something. I, there's some kind of psychology to it. I, I do preach repentance, and I tell you, you must repent. So you have surrender, right? Uh, but I, in, in the process, I'm leading you to salvation. But when you are saved, you now have an instinct inside that says, I love him and I want to please him. So the job of the preacher or the teacher is to, tell, is to coach. How? I, Lord, I, I want to obey you. How do I do it? I've got addictions. I've got issues. I've got problems. I've got harassments. How do I please you? How do I walk? Well, right now, we open the word and we learn how. You follow? To the person who's already got a new heart, you teach them how to do what they want to do, which is please the Lord. Verse 27, God, Ezekiel says, God will place his Holy Spirit within each believer and their bodies will become living temples. So Jesus says to, uh, later on in John 14, he'll say to this, he says, the Spirit is with you but he will be, and he's referring exactly to that. He's with you, but he will be in you. Jeremiah 31, go with me there for a moment. This is the wonderful new covenant. I'll start at verse 31, down to 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, uh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, where? Within them and on their Heart, I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That phrase is a, is a covenant phrase. When he says, I'll be their God, and they'll be my people, it means they're mine, and I'm theirs, and we have, we, we're married. We, we have a relationship. Verse 34. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall, what? All know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Verse 31 and 32, God says, I will give a new covenant, a new covenant will replace the old covenant. The old covenant is the one formed at Sinai. It's not, it's not wrong, but it didn't work. Why? Because the heart, human heart was still hard and rebellious. So God had to do a miracle inside us for, for him to form us in his image. Verse 33, God will transform each believer's heart until he or she wants to obey him and is led by the Spirit to do what is right. Verse 34, there will be no favoritism. God will enter into a personal relationship with all his people. There will be no hierarchical structure in this. 
There won't, from the least to the greatest, no one will say, know the Lord or have to teach the others. For all will know me and he will continually forgive their sins. So his relationship with them will not end. How many are glad you have the new covenant? In In the night in which you betrayed, the Lord Jesus took a cup and he held it up and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. My death is bringing that to you. When promises like these are believed and received, there can be no room for jealousy. We find ourselves at the feet of an incredibly generous God. As Paul said, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And by the phrase, all things, Paul means not only all the resources we need in this life, but also the glorious authority we've been given to rule with Christ in this age and the next. Listen, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Could he say it any bigger? Look at the list. Life, death, things present, things to come, uh, all things. When you and I are joined to Christ, we are co-heirs with Christ of the things of God. Now, we're not divine, but we have been adopted into this family and granted this privilege to rule and reign with him. We don't have a clue how big this is. And Paul is saying to Corinth, and they're fighting over which group they're following. He says, what are you doing? What are you doing? Don't you realize who you are? You're going to rule, you're, 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 you've been created to, to rule and reign with Christ. This earth and all that God has made are yours to, to lead and minister to. Stop it. Stop it. He couldn't give you more. Viewed from this perspective, there is no basis whatsoever for spiritual jealousy among believers. If I'm jealous, my problem isn't you. And it isn't God. It's me. I've lost sight of my promise and believed a lie. My relationship with God is lacking. The answer, if, if it is, the answer will only come when I change. I must learn to receive what's been given to me in Christ. In order to respond to this lesson on spiritual jealousy, let's ask ourselves two questions. First, what should I do if I'm jealous of someone else? Well, here are four steps I can take. Number one, recognize it. Recognize my jealousy. Two, realize it's based on a lie that I can't have the same intimacy with God. Three, expect the promise to be given to me as well. And four, and this is important, invest the time and energy necessary to receive that promise and develop a close walk with God. There is no getting around the fact that some people are more spiritually wired uh, to, to be spiritually sensitive than others. Some of you have been sensitive spiritually since you were a child. In fact, it's downright uncomfortable. I have people come to me with some regularity, even unbelievers. This has nothing to do at this point. We're not even talking about a Christian thing. We're just talking about spiritually uh, sensitive. I have people come and they have dreams, they have visions, they know stuff ahead of time, and it, it, it's, it's a torment. And I've, I've got people going, what am I to do with this? I see these things, you know, and, and, and I'm, I actually have to teach them not to listen because it's the wrong voice. But they are in, spiritually, they're picking up static. 
Other people, how do I say this? Are, 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 it's, it's a labor. Some of, uh, sometimes we're real cerebral. And so we just, you know, <laughs> you know and, and it's hard for us to proceed. Having done that, I, I hesitate to share what I'm going to share. But um, I don't know if I'll leave him nameless or not. I didn't last night. So uh, I had, we had a, a young man here, here for uh, many years on our, on our pastoral staff. Uh, by the way, I love dearly. And uh, he, he started out, this, he was a real illustration to me. He started out as one of those people who was, it was very hard for him spiritually very cerebral, everything. It just labored. And you talk about hearing from God, praying in tongues, and moving in prophecies, and it's just, it just didn't, it wouldn't work for me. I just tried, and uh, you know, I just guess, I guess I'm not wired that way. And I, and I want to show a hands, but some of you think to yourself, I guess I'm just not wired. I, you know, my wife or my husband, they're very spiritual. I'm just not. I guess it's the way I'm made. I, he, I wish, him. Yeah, he's a classic. So he, but what he did is invest the time and energy. He stayed with it. At one point, we actually put him into the healing and deliverance ministry in order to just get him into the, into the middle of stuff. As time went on, I watched a man who had who just labored to hear anything from God become very spiritually sensitive, very accurate. In fact, he began to lead in the healing and deliverance ministry. You all know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about David Norcross, yes, who's now pastoring. David now is extremely sensitive and extremely effective in the spirit. I say that to say, don't you categorize yourself as someone who can't move. Don't you be jealous of others. If you are struggling to hear, it's only because you have yet to learn how. I'll have people say, I never hear a thing from God. And then I, then I go, go on the silent prayer retreat. You know, and then we take your phone away from you. <laughs> we take your phone away and, and, and stick you there on a beautiful 50-acre plot with no phone. And, uh, and you've got to talk to God. And it's, and it's silence. I, I don't know anybody who's come back and said, I didn't hear from God. You see, you are spiritual. You're created that way. We all are. We are all in his image. It means spiritual. We are spirits. Yes, you can. And if you haven't yet, it's because you don't know how to turn the radio on. But it's not anyone else's fault, and it's not God's fault. He has not withheld from you a thing. And every one of us, as we learn to walk in these things, God will pour out his spirit through you, as he will do through anyone. Your assignment's different than your assignment, than your assignment, than my assignment. That doesn't, that doesn't matter, but that, will he pour his power out? Will he talk to you? Will he move mightily through you? Will he change eternity through you? Yes, he will. Yes, he will. He ha- we have no place for jealousy. And there's a second question, and responding to this one can be more difficult than the first. What should I do if someone is jealous of me? Here are four steps I can take. Number one, recognize it as an attack on that person. They are being harassed. We should feel concern, not pride, and do nothing to encourage it. Let people see your weakness 
as well as your strength, it will give them hope. It's very important. Do not play to it. When, when God uses you mightily, people will go, wow. You know, like, can I touch you? I mean, they, they begin, it's, it's something in us. We begin to look at the person. Do not allow that to happen. Do not allow, do not feed that. I, I say that because there are people who look into the spiritual realm for achievement. They want to be spiritually prominent since if they haven't made it in other parts of life, they want to be spiritually prominent and spiritually recognized. That's a terrible thing. It's a horrible pride. And, and it has to be brought down. So when, when people start coming, coming to you and, 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 and feeling jealous of you, you have, to, you, have to, you have to back that down and say, look, God's given to you everything he's given to me. And, and, uh, and, and I, here are my struggles. You have to diffuse that kind of admiration. Uh, and put their eyes back where? On the Lord, yes. Number two, realize it's based on a lie. You are not superior to that person. You've simply learned some important lessons they haven't yet. Number three, pray for them to find Jesus as their Savior if they have not, or receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit if they have not. Um, I minister that almost every week, it seems like I'm praying for somebody. Often Christians who've long had loved the Lord, but have not yet broken through in the baptism of the Spirit or praying in tongues. Uh, sometimes they, I think they have been baptized. They simply haven't spoken in tongues. And I, I'm, I'm ministering that, it seems like, all the time. Or to learn how to develop a close walk with God. And four, watch for the opportunity to help that person receive the care they need. Why? Read this with me, would you? Because love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. That means if I have Jesus' selfless love in me, I'll rejoice when God blesses you. Not be jealous. And when God blesses me, I'll be careful to acknowledge that I don't deserve any of it. But I've received grace from our Father, who has enormous blessings planned for you as well. Would you stand with me? Blessed be the Lord. First of all, let's examine our hearts. Anybody, uh, and I don't want hands. This is just between you and the Lord. Anybody struggle with spiritual jealousy? And I'll just say, since I won't ask you, but I'll tell you, this is something that can haunt me. And I can find myself very jealous and very critical. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed of it. I'm not proud of it. It's, it's a disgusting part of my flesh, but it is what it is. And I'm constantly having to bring that before the Lord and bless and pray for people and, and thank God for, their, for his hand on those people and just rejoice and say, God, bless them more. Bless them more. And when everything in me is feeling jealous, I can't allow that attitude. It's a, it's a crippling attitude. It's a terrible thing. I have to walk in what God's called me to do. And I have to walk in that and, and fulfill my assignment and not not long or criticize or, or compare myself to others. Do you have that? If there's any of that, if you see it, for, I can't say today's going to be the end of it. But right now, the message today should say to us, I cannot ever allow that to remain. Every time it pops its head up, I have to deal with it. It needs to be repented of. It needs to be seen as a temptation from the devil. It needs to be seen as a lie both to separate me from someone else and to, to, and to take from me the confidence that God has called and anointed me to do great things, that he has an assignment for me, 
that was, was formed from before the worlds were. I, I've lost sight of who I am. So Lord, right now, if any of that creeps up and when it creeps up in our hearts, we simply say to you, you have our generous father. You withhold nothing from us. You don't give us a little of the Holy Spirit, one person some and one person more. You give every one of us the Spirit without measure, without measure, dear one. You give us yourself, all of yourself. And in whatever way we limit that, forgive us. Lord, we would each one move forward and embrace more and more of the grace you have given to us. Thank you for your generosity. Blessed be the Lord. We trust your heart and we love you. If that's your prayer, would you say amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.